Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion and public life and religion and social justice. In a few minutes, I'm going to be speaking with Carol Landis, the president of the Board of Directors for the Green Interfaith Network of Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. The Green Interfaith Network, or GINI, is a network of faith groups working on behalf of the environment. A shift is starting to occur as people of faith are starting to address environmental concerns with evangelical fervor. Traditional Christians have often been suspicious of the environmental movement that in their minds has been associated with worshiping trees rather than God. Some may think that worshiping trees is better than cutting them all down. Perhaps if we viewed earth with a capital E as a proper noun and regard it as holy rather than as the earth, a ball of inert material resources to exploit, we might be more conscious and conscientious about the effects our actions have on earth and all of its species now and in the future. While liberal or progressive Christians have been involved in environmental issues for some time, I find it encouraging that conservative and evangelical Christians are also turning their attention to the environment. In bookstores, you can find the Green Bible, in which certain passages of the Bible are highlighted in green print that are especially useful as a spiritual guidance for earth care. An organization out of Knoxville called LEAF, or the Lindquist Environmental Appalachian Fellowship, provides an outreach to churches about environmental or creation care issues. One of the books that they distribute is by J. Matthew Sleeth called Serve God, Save the Planet, A Christian Call to Action. This is a book by an evangelical Christian to other evangelical Christians regarding the importance of simplifying one's life, caring for earth, and doing so because it is what God desires of them. I call this program Religion for Life because I have a concern for this life. I'm interested in speaking with people whose religious views and passions lead them to action on behalf of this life. I'm also interested in how religion impacts our public life in both positive and negative ways. I remember as a child singing in church, the earth is not my home, I'm just passing through. I personally no longer think of earth or life that way. My life is temporary, but earth is my home. I am an earthling. Out of earth I have my being, and to earth I shall return. My passionate concern needs to be to care for earth, my home and your home, and the home of those who may disagree with me that earth is home. I wish to leave it in good shape for future generations. I would hope that my descendants seven generations hence would be able to hike the tobacco root mountains that reach the sky near my childhood home in Whitehall, Montana. I would hope that my descendants and yours will drink fresh water and have clean air to breathe and healthy food to eat. I have grave doubts that that will be our future. We seem to be driven to use up every non-renewable resource as fast as we can so we can keep driving our cars. We're in a traffic jam and we don't know how to get out of it. Cultural historian, passionate advocate for the environment and self-described geologian, the late Thomas Berry, described our condition in his book, The Great Work, Our Way into the Future. He wrote, the ideal is to take the greatest possible amount of natural resources, process these resources, put them through the consumer economy as quickly as possible, then onto the waste heap. This we consider as progress. That quote from Thomas Berry has stuck with me. We need a new myth, new meaning, a new vision of progress and the good life. 
It is, in a sense, a spiritual or religious question. Who are we as human beings, and what do we really want? Many of us are asking these questions. How can we make our lives more sustainable, more joyful, more interconnected, more aware, and more meaningful? The Green Interfaith Network is one such organization in the Tri-Cities that is asking these questions. I am speaking with Carol Landis. Carol is the president of the board of directors for GINI, which is the Green Interfaith Network, which has recently been formed in uh, the Tri-Cities area. How long has it been going, Carol? I believe this is our third year, um, but we, we're, we're still, we're finally organized, and uh, the first year was a lot of startup. Well, I know uh, the church I serve, First Presbyterian Elizabethan, was, was part of the startup of Ginny, and, but now it's expanded to how many churches are involved? We have about 10 churches with uh, members who um, participate in Ginny. Um, we're hoping to expand that. It's not just about churches. It's about any faith group. Is right. that right? Right. Any faith group at all. And, that's, and, and even, even people who um, don't, aren't formal members of a, of a faith group, um, we're looking for people uh, who have faith and, and have a purpose. Tell me a little bit now about what, what Green Interfaith Network is doing and why it's, why it's here and what it's about. Okay. Um, Green Interfaith Network is um, we, the vision and mission statement were one of the first things that we did. And, and the um, mission statement is to be the spiritual voice for people of faith uh, in Northeast Tennessee and Southwest, Southwest Virginia um, in terms of earth stewardship and um, eco-justice, you know, environmental justice. And we believe that um, every, every faith group has some element of an ethic toward the earth and toward other people. And so our, our intention is to try and have as many people representing diverse groups of, of the faithful to participate and to act accordingly, to do what they can where they are. Um, and I think that we, by providing sort of a nucleus and maybe a clearinghouse of information, we may be able to encourage people to do some things that they've found it difficult to do in their, in their home space. So what what are some of those things? Have you had have you had congregations be able because of this networking together to do some specific things that they hadn't done before? Well, what we're trying to do is coordinate um, the efforts. Uh, you, you know, your congregation certainly is a leader in in the area in terms of uh, some of the efforts that people can take, both individually and as a community. One of the things that we're trying to do is to, for example, um, get people to think about energy audits. When I was in Ohio, we did some work with the Interfaith Power and Light Group, and we provided a grants to churches to look at, you know, literally look at how, how's, your, how's your building doing? You know, what are some things you can do in your house of worship? Um, so that's one of the things that we're working on. Another thing is just simply be, being becoming more aware of all of the various resource uh, issues both in our personal lives and as a community, what we can do. And I know we can do more as a community than we do individually. So it's it's really sort of a networking opportunity. Part of the work here is to help congregations check their own place out, be energy wise. And then in addition to that, it's also uh, speaking to the larger community. Is that uh, uh, in terms of how we might be, might be saying being prophetic? Yes. Of, of what we're looking at in terms of our energy resource, in terms of climate change, in terms of all of those things. Right. Exactly. It, it, the, the earth stewardship component has to do with all of our resources. If we look at sustainability, you know, what is, what is sustainability? The um, 
opportunity for uh, future generations to benefit from the resources just as we have, not depleting the resources. And so if we think of it in that long term, um, we need to be more thoughtful about how how we are currently using the resources we use, including water as well as energy, um, how we use the land space. You know, are we are we doing silly things, importing invasive species or not not taking care of those invasive species? Um, water use on the grounds of the, of the you know, place of worship. Um, landscaping issues, and I mean, there are many, many ways that we just, if you start thinking about what is the best way to maintain and to provide future resources to future generations, we can do these things more thoughtfully. And by actually looking at our practices, I believe that um, once, once a practice sort of becomes natural, um, even in, or, or a, an important purpose for a faith group, that it will also impact people in their homes. And then they, because of their networking, will impact their neighbors. And eventually, I think that this kind of um, example or role, mo mo role modeling, maybe, if you will, mm -hmm. um, offers an opportunity for the community to advance and to, and to, and to be to do things in a more thoughtful way, rather than just the automatic way that we've become accustomed to. So this is really a grant, rather than think of how we can get the government yeah. to fix things. Mm -hmm. These are these are folks, we're starting at our, our, the local networks that we have, and many people are involved in faith communities, starting there, having conversations back and forth. Sustainability, you know, I was thinking about that, and thinking about how faith relates. And really, sustainability is... Um, what we might call justice, mm -hmm. justice to earth, justice to one another. It, it really is a moral issue. Um, I'm thinking of Matthew Fox, who was a theologian, who said that that which is unsustainable is unjust, that, that the faith issue really has to do, are, are we, and when, when we mean by sustainable, is that what we take, we give back, so we can continue to do that, presumably, mm -hmm. generation after generation. And we aren't living like that at all no. in terms of industrial civilization. We are just using, blowing up mountains, yeah. taking uh, fossil fuels from oil, whatever we can, and sending the refuse out into the atmosphere, mm -hmm. keeping going for a little while, but it has no sense of a future right. to that. Is, do you ever wonder, does it get overwhelming? How do you, how do you um, I'm thinking of the Green Interfaith Network, and I'm thinking of folks getting together, and I'm thinking of the huge issue. What keeps you hopeful? and going. I, I, I'm a retired science teacher, and I know for a fact that science only impresses some people. Um, mm -hmm. There are different ways of knowing, different ways of understanding the world that we live in, and I don't know the deep philosophy behind it, but uh, certainly some people need evidence. Some people rely more heavily on their own perceptions. Um, some people can trust authority. They, they, they develop enough understanding and accept other people's perceptions and, and uh, ways of expressing things. Um, and so it has become clear to me that although science is very compelling to me and I rely on evidence and what I understand and check my understanding frequently, um, many people don't do that. And so I think one of the things that, that appeals to me about Ginny and about the Green Interfaith Network is we're looking at how do people um, who have this common ethic of being concerned about the earth and about our neighbors, um, how do we empower them to do what they can do where they are? And so I, I remain hopeful, partly because 
Um, I, I graduated from high school in 1970, which, you know, puts a date on my name right now. But the point is that the Earth Day was just getting started. Right. We had read a book called The Population Bomb. Uh, there have been many... Um, rather depressing um, forecasts of what our society is about to do. Um, and, it, and it is evident, uh, if you look at the, uh, the science behind what is going on, we are living in a very unsustainable way right now. Mm-hmm. And we know better. So it's, what, what's um, puzzling to me is the policy end of how do you make that change? And, and I firmly believe, um, and I guess partly based on my years as a teacher, that each person does make a difference because of our networking and, and that sort of thing. It's a ripple effect, if you will. But I really believe that this groundswell can make a difference. And, I, and, and so that's what gives me hope. I believe that we have an obligation to do what we can where we are. And that's actually part of the reason why I'm here I'm, and why I volunteered to be um, uh, with Ginny and help things get things going is because I do understand the science part, but I also understand that um, people of faith have literally a moral and ethical obligation to do better. And we can do better. We know this. We know what to do. We know how to do it. It's a matter of many of the things that we are asking people to do um, are simply behavioral. Unfortunately, a lot of people think that if they're going to make a change that's going to affect resource use, it's going to cost them money. They're going to have to buy the bulbs and change their windows and all these sorts of things, when in fact, um, some of the larger changes occur just by changing behavior, by turning the water off when you're washing your hands, you know, mm-hmm. by um, and when brushing your teeth. You know, very simple little things that once it becomes a habit, you don't really even think of it anymore. But it needs to be brought to your consciousness. And I believe that's one of the things that Ginny can do. So we can do it on that level. I'm, I'm thinking uh, you talk about the things that we can do. If we have to use a half of the energy that we have available to us, we would. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may, it may, may take some sacrifices. Mm-hmm. But motivating that and then and the motivation on our, on our own, is there a sense in which we need to have a bigger motivation? Like, for example, I imagine price mm-hmm. will motivate us. Mm-hmm. You know, when electricity goes up, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll use less. But it almost seems that trying to save the planet on a volunteer level. And so is Ginny at all involved in taking some stands on, on, on those things, or do you let that uh, go? Or Well, right now, um, we are still trying to do everything locally. Um, we're, start, we're, we're trying to build our network uh, locally. We want to uh, increase the diversity of the faithful that are part, participating with Jenny. Advocacy can has its own um, problems uh, for, for organizations. Um, on the other hand, it's silly to work as hard as we can locally and understand that decisions are being made that that affect many, many people. Um, And so, for example, with the mountaintop removal issue, Mm -hmm. um, uh, we are becoming more active in helping to inform our policymakers um, of the opinions that that their constituents have. And I think that's a very that's a valid, uh, in fact, an important part of uh, an active democracy. Absolutely. I mean, just just with mountaintop removal for a minute, um, as I understand it, most, the majority of Tennesseans, for example, don't want mountaintop removal strip mining coming to Tennessee. I drive uh, up to Columbus, Ohio once a month. And on my way back from Ohio, coming down Route 23 yesterday, I saw another mountaintop removed. I, it has been about two and a half weeks since. And, and these are ones that you can see directly from 23. It's really obvious. And it saddens me. I mean, I, I, I just, 
I, I turned off the disc that I was listening to and just drove in silence for a while. It just saddens me to see that horrific destruction knowing what happens downstream mm -hmm. and the impact of asthma and the birth defects that are in, in a higher rate in areas where mountaintop removal occurs. I mean, these are things that are unconscionable. I, I can't imagine that the economics makes that worthwhile. Um, and, and I understand the, na the nature of wanting to have our energy independence. However, most people don't understand that the coal that's removed from these states is not even used in the United States. It's making money and being shipped to Romania or China. So it's not even a patriotic thing to do. There's no good reason to remove mountaintops. God, God gave us those mountains. They're beautiful. We love them. How can we do this? It's, it's, it's absolutely unconscionable to me. We're trading something permanent for something far less permanent oh. and far less and so and temporary in so many different ways. I'm speaking with Carol Landis, who is the uh, president of the board of directors for GINI, the Green Interfaith Network, a coalition of congregations, of people of faith, of different faiths uh, in our region, working together to talk about how we might be better stewards of our creation. Climate change, you're a scientist? Yeah, sort of. I'm, I'm a... Well, you're a science yes. educator, and, and you know um, the argument sometimes I hear is, well, scientists are divided about whether or not human beings are involved in, in increasing levels of CO2 and whether that's connected with climate change, and these are all natural patterns. And is that true? I mean, are scientists divided? I, this is a common misconception, partly because of the way science works. Science is advances through critical review of each other's work. And so obviously they point out flaws. And so in the process of doing that, they may see, they may think of something that the other person didn't think about, but most of the time it's something that wasn't communicated as well. And that, that constant review of each other's work, um, makes it seem like they're always arguing. Uh, when I was teaching high school, my students would say, but the scientists, they just bicker about everything. They, don't, they haven't decided anything. And when they decide, they'll tell us. This is sort of like the cure for polio or the, um, you know, what is the next step that will actually definitively make a difference? Well, we're not, we're, when you're talking about the environment, there isn't something like that. And mm -hmm. so the, no, the nature of science means that the scientists are, are quibbling over details. However, 98% of the climate scientists agree that humans are impacting the climate. 98%. 98%. Well, that's pretty close to a consensus. Yeah, it's about as close <laughs> as you can get in science. Right. And now the question then becomes, well, what do you do about that? Now, that's a policy level question. That's something scientists are much less comfortable talking about. Scientists are about the what is, describing, explaining the relationships, predicting um, they always predict with an with an error bar, which says that you know the models say this much, and it, with this or this amount of error, or sometimes they use the word uncertainty, which the public, I think, misunderstands also. Mm -hmm. um, it it would be much better, I think, if they would say with a probability of this, but rather they say an uncertainty, and the uncertainty aspect makes people think that they're unsure or that they that they're really just guessing. When in fact the data are very strong, the evidence is compelling, is overwhelming actually, and that's why 98% of climate scientists agree that not only is climate change happening, and this is an abrupt form of climate change, but that it is human related. And then the other thing we often hear is that well, by 2100, sea levels will rise two feet or or something like that. 
And that's rather removed from our daily life. Yes. But climate change really has effects now. Now, absolutely. And and the sea level rise, what are some of the effects? Can you tell us what, we'll, what we can, might expect? Sure. Um, I need to first of all say that the models that scientists use to make those predictions are based on the best evidence we have so far. And as the technology, just as MRIs and other types of medical technologies have improved our ability to de de detect and diagnose things, there will be technologies that improve our ability to forecast this, the future changes. They are very complex and our limitations right now are, are computer related. Um, however, what we can see already happening is the intensity of rainfall events, for example. and uh, I can give an, a good example from Ohio. Corn farmers just north of Interstate 70, two counties, one north of 70, one south of 70, growing the same types of corn, planted about the same times. One county had the best growth ever in that year, and the county directly um, south of it, I'm sorry, the, the county north had the best growth ever and the best yield. Uh, the county south of 70 had their worst yield, same year. The difference is that the storm tracks tend to follow right along I-70, and the county south of I-70 had gotten enough rainfall at the right periods of time. They both had about the same rainfall, but it has to happen at a certain time sure. for the corn to do well. So these are the kinds of changes that we can expect. Another thing that is happening with warming is that surface streams are warming. Um, if you like trout fishing, which my dad mm -hmm. did, um, they depend much more on colder water. And so there are changes that are just m sort of minor things, um, but the, the more uh, directly impacting things have to do with the life cycle of insects. Um, if, if we have X number of war more warming days than we had before, uh, insects will be in the system longer. Um, we used to rely on those freezes, those cold temperatures to remove insects. Um, if you are using a, a, a flea and tick kind of thing on your dogs, for example. Um, you need to do that year round. Um, whereas before you could do it maybe March to November and take a couple months off. So there are things like that that are just literally, you know, they're, they're small and they're annoyances. The intensity of storms are the things that are going to um, really affect us more and the erosion um, aspects from that runoff. Uh, those are the two probably big things. Um, as you know, Hurricane Irene came whipping all the way up the East Coast. Uh, intensity of, of hurricanes is increasing. Um, so that has to do simply, that's a physics process. Mm -hmm. um, how many of them come directly at us isn't, you know, that's another physics process and it's ra more random. But the fact that the ocean temperature is warming means that more evaporation will occur, means that the hurricanes will have more water in them. That's what changes the into, into the power of the storm. And so right. the, the, it's called the latent energy um, in water changing phase. And so the point is that the storms are expected to become stronger. We have already seen, by the way, and evidence shows that um, there have been more category four and five storms in uh, you know the period of time than had previously been the case. So again, it's a simple physics principle. Warmer water equals more powerful storms. Right. Is there something that we can do as as individuals in in um, yeah. yeah riding riding the storm out. Sure. I think you know that this is where I, I I appeal to people to act where they are and to do what they believe is that that suits their conscience. Um, we we are hoping to, as I said, empower people to. Um, do what they can where they are. Sometimes I've found that um, in a 
even in um, faith groups, the power structure is such that it has to go to some committee and then this has to go whatever. And people get kind of worn out Mm -hmm. um, in those processes. And so we're trying to just empower people to say, well, even if you can't get a full committee at your house of worship to do X, Y, and Z, you can still do this and provide some feedback to other people in your community. And so we think that um, climate change is a huge, very complex issue, but it's one factor. In fact, climate change is just one piece of the puzzle. We're talking about global environmental change, and that has as much to do with urbanization and where parking lots are put in and how many trees are planted or taken down, which kinds of trees. So there are things where we can inform ourselves about just everyday in our neighborhood kinds of activities that will have a an impact. And I believe that as more people become educated about this process, hopefully they will also become more um, actively engaged as citizens. More and, aware and more personally responsible. Yes. And communicating that to their their um, representatives. Because I believe just as with the mountaintop removal, um, we have a hydraulic fracking problem uh, in, in it's coming to us, whether or not you, you, know, you want to admit it, Ohio and Pennsylvania. For natural been, gas. For natural gas have already been affected by this. And these are things where it affects everyday people where they live. And you have, I, I believe they, we have to speak out. We must speak out because the policymakers are being influenced heavily by the economics of the situation. And the jobs, jobs, jobs push um, is clearly something that they have to keep in mind. So can the economics outweigh the impact on local communities? That's what we have to that's what we have to decide and and how much we can empower people to do what what they believe. Uh, We're not trying to change what people believe. We're just trying Mm -hmm. to say, if you believe this. We need you to act. Carol Landis, the uh, president of the board of directors for Ginny, Green Interfaith Network. Carol, um, tell us how folks locally could get involved in, in Ginny or wh- when, when do you meet? Do you have a, your website and all of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, we go. Uh, we use Green Interfaith um, as, our, as the search term. Um, no space in between, Green Interfaith. And um, we have a website. Uh, we certainly encourage people to join us. Um, we have meetings on generally the third Sunday of each month uh, from 4 to 6 p.m. They, they r- rotate around. So the best thing to do is to go to the website and uh, find out where, the, where and when the next meeting is. We have uh, had very good speakers um, at our meetings and trying to educate people about different things, such as uh, local uh, farmers markets. Um, Anthony Flacavento um, just presented, I wasn't here for that meeting, but he just presented to Ginny, and I I heard just really good reviews of that. Um, We've had people speak about mountaintop removal, um, and we, we really just encourage people to Join us, become more informed, uh, know that there are people that you can talk with um, so that if, if you tend to hit a wall where you are or there's things you know you need to know, we want to be a clearinghouse for reliable, um, scientifically valid information that people can trust. And we also are going to try more to be a, a conduit to help people express their opinions to their representatives. So greeninterfaith.org mm-hmm. would get folks to the website and yes. that information. Yes. Carol Landis, thank you for being with us today. I appreciate that. Sure. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion and public life and religion and social justice. I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find podcasts of this program on the church's website, fpcelizabethton.org. 
You can also find out more information about this program and other related issues on my blog, shuckandjive.org. You can also find contact information for me on the blog and the website. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS Johnson City, Tennessee and WEHC Emory, Virginia. Be well.